have, have any of you ever thought about uh, what life might be like, how, how difficult it would be if you were blind, or if you were not able to see? Uh, and, and contemplating that uh, right now in the 21st century, uh, blindness w- would always be difficult. Uh, and it would always be a, a very severe trial. But th- there are many modern conveniences that, that we have uh, that would make uh, being blind in the 21st century uh, easier than it has been in the past. Uh, and so things that we take for, for granted now, usually when we see somebody uh, who is uh, blind, they, they usually have a, a cane and they're able to, to move about and feel things. Some of them uh, may have a, a seeing eye dog uh, to aid them. Uh, uh, the blind are now able to read uh, through the use of uh, Braille. Uh, any of you ever wonder why, like in the drive-through ATMs, they have Braille on the? Uh, like that's a like I'm concerned about that. But uh, but there there are many things uh, that that blind people would still be able to to be cared for and and looked after today. So blindness is always a trial. Uh, and so when we think about what would it like to be blind, we always think about what it would be like to be blind right here and right now. Uh, but imagine with me what it would have been like to be blind in ancient times. And there were no Braille books. There were no audio books. There were no uh, crosswalks uh, with sounds to let you know when it was, was safe to, to go across. There was really no occupation for a, a blind person in ancient times. Right? They couldn't r- really walk around the streets of a city because it would have been too chaotic. Uh, if you've ever walked on an ancient street, uh, the, the, the pavement is uneven, uh, and it would be very difficult for uh, a blind person to, to even walk down the street without uh, someone walking with them and aiding them. And... Uh, so th- that blind person would not be able to, to move about, and really they would have been relegated uh, to sitting in a singular location and begging. And because of that, think about a person who was born blind or who was uh, somehow made blind later on in life, that really from the point of their blindness onward, they would have no, no prospects for marriage, uh, no hope of a family, where again, in our contemporary society, if you are blind, you can still live life uh, to a very full degree. Okay, so if you had no prospects of marriage or family, you really also had no uh, social honor uh, in that society, and you would be at the absolute bottom of the, the social ladder. And there were no uh, means uh, of uh, the, the government or any social services to be able to to help you get on your feet and, and look after you. You would be completely dependent upon uh, family uh, to look after you or friends uh, to assist you. Uh, and so if we imagine and, and put ourselves in the sandals of this man who was born blind, we've been uh, looking at uh, in John chapter 9, imagine what it would have been like for him. He had been blind from birth. Uh, and so for his entire life, he had been uh, in darkness, uh, in a position of desperation, uh, in maybe even hopelessness. Right? If he's just merely sitting, begging for alms, not able to, to see anything that's going on around him, this is an absolutely desperate, completely hopeless, uh, and he's locked in, in utter darkness. 
to the dire situation. But seeing and understanding his physical situation, this man who was born blind in John chapter 9, he is a picture uh, of our natural spiritual condition. Everything that we see that is true of him physically uh, describes us spiritually. And you and I might have been born with uh, eyes that, that work and, and we can uh, move about and, and see, uh, but we are just as desperate uh, and hopeless spiritually, still trapped in the darkness of sin. And this man's hopeless condition only serves to, to heighten what Jesus does for him, right? Now, if, if this man is absolutely at the, the lowest of low positions, uh, what we're going to see this morning, we're going we're to study this miracle that Jesus performs uh, and what he does for this man. And, and that fact that he is uh, absolutely uh, at the lowest of the low, but we see what Jesus does in bringing the lowest of the low and, and elevating them, giving him spiritual sight, physical sight, uh, and so much more. Uh, and again, all of this serves to, to highlight uh, as a picture of our own salvation, that, that we were uh, the lowest of low in desperate situations, uh, and yet Christ has worked to save and redeem us. Uh, and this chapter, uh, John chapter 9, one of my favorite chapters uh, in all of the Bible, uh, is going to provide clarity uh, to who Jesus is and what he has done for us. Uh, and the events of uh, John chapter 9 and John chapter 9 as a whole is really a, a literary masterpiece. Uh, and you're like, what, really? Uh, absolutely. Uh, and in John chapter 9, uh, there's going to be so many things that, that come together. It's like a really good uh, movie that's been like four or five separate storylines uh, going all together. And then what happens at the end? Uh, all of the storylines uh, fit together and are woven in. You see how everything resolves. Uh, John chapter 9 is going to be that. Uh, after some, some chapters of really heavy theology, uh, a lot of uh, Jesus uh, speaking and, and arguing and debating, uh, Jesus is going to be uh, at the beginning of this chapter. He's going to be on the scene, and then he's going to disappear for a while, and then he's going to come on back onto the scene at the very end of the chapter. So most of this chapter uh, isn't even about Jesus. He's not even in the picture after he performs the miracle. Uh, but we're going to see uh, some great similarities here in what all of these uh, stories are going to be tied together. Uh, this a chapter uh, serves to contrast with the events of John chapter 5. Uh, and if you uh, have your Bible, turn over uh, just a couple pages to John chapter 5. You see a, a heading there, uh, and uh, the heading in the ESV Bible says, The Healing at the Pool on the Sabbath. Uh, and so back in John chapter 5, uh, there was a, a man who was an invalid for 38 years. Right, a very long time, and he, he was longing to be healed, and Jesus uh, comes by the pool of Bethesda, uh, sees the man, uh, and he immediately kind of selects this man and heals him, uh, and the man gets up uh, and goes on his way. Uh, and so this can be very similar to what we're going to see here in John chapter 9, because uh, there, there's a healing at the beginning of the chapter, and that sparks a great deal of controversy afterwards. The healing takes place uh, on a Sabbath, uh, and there's also going to be a, a second round of interactions between the man who is healed and Jesus. Uh, and key to, to think about the events of John chapter 5, uh, when this man was healed, this man who had been an invalid for 38 years, later on he was asked, who is it that healed you? And he's like, I don't know. Think about that. If, if you were an invalid for 38 years and someone came to, and healed you, 
would you at least want to learn that person's name that might be on the to-do list of like, hey, so who are you? Uh, Can we hang out for a little bit? And like, how did you do that? Uh, But this man uh, was healed, and then he wanted nothing else to do with Jesus. And that's where uh, the great uh, point of contrast is between uh, these two chapters uh, of the events of John chapter 5 and John chapter 9. Similar in so many ways, the big point of difference is how does the person who is healed respond? Uh, And what we're going to see in John chapter 9, this man who was born blind is going to be healed in our passage today. He immediately knows Jesus. Uh, And he wants to know him more. That song that we just sang is true about the man who was born blind. Uh, He's going to speak about Jesus. He's going to defend Jesus against the attacks of the Pharisees. Uh, And at the end of the chapter, he's even going to follow Jesus. Uh, And he's going to be a disciple and worship him. Uh, And so there's going to be a great point of contrast. So this is where John chapter 9 is so amazing uh, because of the contrast with John chapter 5. But then also... Uh, the Apostle John is going to weave together all of the teaching of Jesus that we've seen in chapters 6, 7, and 8, in which Jesus said that he is uh, the bread of life, the light of the world, that anyone who comes to him, uh, all who are thirsty come to him and drink. All of this really weighty theology is going to be displayed for us uh, here in the events of John chapter 9. And specifically, there's a very abstract concept that was mentioned in John chapter 8, verse 12. Uh, And that concept, the statement made by Jesus, is going to be uh, painted for us in this chapter in full color and with full clarity. Uh, And so what was that statement in John chapter 8, verse 12? It says, again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Like, what does that mean? He says, I am the light of the world. And then he promises, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of the world of life. Uh, And so this chapter, John chapter 9, is immediately going to to prove that statement, uh, that Jesus is the light of the world. And it's going to tell us and show us what it means that Jesus is the light of the world uh, and uh, how significant this is. And and really this chapter is going to be uh, put that on display, uh, that Jesus is the light of the world. But then light means something, right? When When a light comes on, People respond, just like uh, when you turn the, if if you've ever had cockroaches in your kitchen, hypothetically speaking, when the light comes on, what happens? They flee. They scurry away. The light comes on and there are effects. And what we're going to see here in John chapter 9 laid out very clearly is that when the light of Christ shines in the world, people respond. Hearts are revealed. Uh, And by the end of the chapter, uh, if you look with me at uh, John chapter 9, verse 39, Jesus says, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Uh, when the light of Christ shines, what we're going to see is who really is capable of seeing and who is really blind. Uh, and both physically and, more importantly, spiritually. Uh, that's that's where this chapter is headed, but we are only at the, the very beginning of the chapter. And last week we looked at uh, verses 1 through 3 in John chapter 9, and I would, uh, we're going to look at verses 4 through 7 this morning, but I would invite you just to begin reading with me uh, in verse 1 to get the context of what we're going to be looking at today. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. 
And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. And as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. And then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. And so he went and washed and came back seeing. Let's pause and pray. Heavenly Father, you are the God who is in control of all things. And we thank you for the divine appointment that we have seen here uh, in the very beginning of John chapter 9. This appointment that you had scheduled that was unbeknownst to the disciples, unbeknownst to the man who was born blind. But Jesus knew and understood that you had uh, ordained and, and were allowing suffering so that you might be praised and glorified and that Jesus might put you on display. Father, I ask that you would grant us insight into this passage. Help us to see all that it teaches. Help us to believe all that it teaches. And help us to respond to it in faith that we might be transformed and made more and more like your son Jesus, even as we see him acting here. We ask for your blessing upon our study and our worship of you through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, what we're going to, to see as we study this passage uh, is that Jesus is going to instruct his disciples, uh, and he's going to really be telling them and showing them uh, how the light of Christ is going to be portrayed in the world. Uh, he's going to, to demonstrate what it means for him to be the light of the world. Uh, and then he's going to really, what we're going to see is invite his disciples to participate with him in that ministry, uh, which is going to be significant. And what we're going to see uh, is really how, how does the light of Christ continue to shine even now in the 21st century? Right, even as, as we saw, Jesus says he has to, to do the works of God while it's day, but night's coming when he won't, won't be able to work any longer. Uh, and if Christ was the light of the world and he was here for a time, but then doesn't continue in the world, how is his light continuing to shine? Uh, well, that's what we're going to see here this morning, of specifically uh, three ways the light of Christ is portrayed in the world around us uh, through his people and through the church. Uh, and so the, the first of these ways is going to be seen uh, in verses 4 and 5. And we don't have the, uh, the slides uh, behind me on the live stream like we usually do. Uh, so you'll have to take notes the old-fashioned way. Uh, and, uh, but the, the first uh, way in which uh, the light of Christ is portrayed is the light of Christ is portrayed when his disciples do the works of God. Uh, and we see this in verses 4 and 5. Uh, and what we saw is immediately following Jesus' proclamation uh, that this uh, man, th the focus wasn't upon human sin, but upon the glory of God. This man was born blind so that the works of God may be displayed in him. Uh, and Jesus immediately uh, moves into s the stating that uh, this is uh, what he came to do. 
Uh, and this is what his disciples are also called to do, because he says this is the mission of God. He, he gives a, a statement of we must. Uh, and when he says we, he's speaking about, first and foremost, himself, uh, and then his disciples. Uh, he says it is necessary. Uh, the Greek word there uh, is very specific, and it speaks of those things that are of a divine appointment. He says, hey, Jesus is saying, I have to be doing the works of God. And that makes sense, and it's very clear, like, yeah, Jesus has to be about his Father's business. But why does Jesus say we rather than I? He says, we must do the works uh, of him who sent me, or we must work the works of him who sent me. Uh, and uh, the, the idea here is that the, all of those who are following Jesus are going to be partakers of his ministry to one degree or another. And we'll talk about what that, what that means. Uh, but uh, th- there's an emphasis and an urgency here as well. He says, hey, we must do the, the works of God, uh, and we must do them because uh, there's a time frame. Right? Jesus says, I have to be about his father's business because Jesus is on a schedule. Think about from the time of his ministry began, he knew when he was going to be crucified. It's about three and a half years. So he, he's always looking at his watch, so to speak, uh, always has an appointment to keep, uh, always knows exactly what he should be about. And there's an urgency to what uh, he is always doing. And he is calling his disciples to have that same attitude of we must work the works of God, the one who sent Jesus. Uh, And so his disciples share this mission with him. uh, And uh, when it says while it is day, referring to when Jesus is there with him, they have to be about that. And there's a time coming uh, when it is going to be night. Uh, And he's not just speaking about the end of that particular day, but overall, when Jesus is going to be taken away and arrested, it's going to be very clear in the Gospel of John that that is a period uh, of darkness. Uh, And if you look over in John chapter 12, uh, verses 35 and 36, uh, we're going to to see this. This is just on the the very eve of Jesus' crucifixion, because in John chapter 13, uh, it's going to be the Last Supper. Uh, But John chapter 12, verses 35 and 36. So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. And walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. And the one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. And while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Uh, And then also in John chapter 13, uh, verse 30. So John chapter 13, the Last Supper, Jesus is going to wash the disciples' feet, including Judas, who's going to betray him. Uh, And then uh, Jesus is going to to wash their feet, and then Judas is going to depart from them in verse 30. Uh, So after having received the morsel of bread, uh, he, Judas, immediately went out. And then what does John say? What's that last little statement in verse 30? And it was night. Again, that time when Jesus was going to be taken away, Uh, That period of darkness uh, was now coming. uh, And so Jesus is uh, pointing to that and saying of, hey, while I'm still here, I have to be about my father's business. I have to be working the works of God. And that's what he is saying and emphasizing uh, to his uh, disciples. Uh, And this is a a big obligation uh, that that we, uh, as disciples of Christ, are called to do the works of God, that we are called to uh, to love God and to love our neighbor. And, and doing that, as being salt and light, we are going to put the light of Christ on display. Uh, and there's a, an amazing account of, uh, uh, at the end of the 19th century, uh, there was a, a, 
I've been a, a preacher in uh, London by the name of Charles Spurgeon, uh, and he was the pastor of an absolutely enormous church. Uh, his church could easily uh, fit about 6,500 people, and he regularly filled that uh, uh, church uh, every single Sunday, multiple times, uh, and was preaching to them. Uh, but there is an account uh, that at towards the end of his life, uh, Charles Spurgeon founded a children's orphanage, uh, and uh, one of his friends uh, went with him to visit that orphanage uh, on uh, a particular day. Uh, and after uh, seeing the way that, that Charles Spurgeon had founded the orphanage and then w- was going and visiting uh, small children in, in their infirmities and, and caring for them, uh, this friend of Charles Spurgeon said, this is the most powerful sermon that Charles Spurgeon has ever preached. This, this declaration and living and doing the works of God, caring for others, loving uh, others out of his love for God. Uh, this is what we are called to do. Uh, and, and this is what we often lose focus of and, and lose sight of, uh, just in terms of uh, we can get tied up in, in uh, just the day-to-day uh, things and, and so much more. Uh, but we are called uh, to do the works of God while we are here on the earth. Now, Jesus had an exact timetable uh, of when he was going to be uh, taken away, uh, when he was going to be murdered. Uh, you and I don't have that same timetable, do we? Uh, we don't know the extent of our life. Uh, we don't know uh, when that time is going to come where we have to uh, answer to God and give an account for the way that we've lived. But uh, in, the, in the time that we have allotted to us, what is it we are called to do? We are called to do the works of God, uh, to uh, live for his glory rather than ourselves. Uh, and there's some who, who look at this passage and, and take it to mean that, uh, well, if Jesus is saying we must do the works of God and then he performs a, a miracle, then, then we're going to do the same miracle. Uh, and I would say I, I don't really think that is the case uh, at all here. Uh, because first and foremost, all of the miracles that Jesus performed served to authenticate him as the Son of God, right? All of the miracles that he performed show that he was not an ordinary man, but they proved that he was uh, the Messiah of Israel and that he was uh, sent by God uh, to save humanity. Uh, secondly, the miracles that the apostles perform and the, whom Jesus is speaking directly to when he says we here, uh, the, the apostles performed miracles, but they performed miracles in order to prove that they were uh, sent by God to proclaim the message that Jesus had given to them. Uh, additionally, uh, miracles uh, in, in Scripture, what we, can, what we see, if, if you keep your finger here and turn over to Matthew chapter 7. Jesus, in Matthew 7, alludes that there are miracles that are performed uh, that uh, are not, uh, he is not the power behind them. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. It is not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Same idea of we must do the works of God. Uh, and then it's amazing what he lists out here, uh, and contrary to, hey, this is not the, the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do my many mighty works in your name? And then note Jesus' response. And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. 
They're looking and saying, hey, we've done all of these miracles in your name. And Jesus is saying, I don't even know you. You have not been serving me. Uh, and uh, w- when we rightly understand miracles in Scripture, that, that they authenticate uh, a, a man's ministry as coming from God, uh, that is not what we are called to do now here in the 21st century. What, what is it that authenticates us as Christians? Right? Uh, Christ-likeness uh, and uh, a sound understanding of who Jesus is and all that he has proclaimed in his word. Uh, holy living and sound doctrine are what authenticate the lives of believers now, uh, not the performance of miracles. Uh, and so as followers of Jesus today, uh, we share in Christ's mission, but it's not to do miracles, but it's to love God and love others, uh, to go and seek to do good in our communities, uh, in our families, in our neighborhoods, and dare I even say on Mother's Day, who should we be focused upon loving and caring for and expressing uh, uh, love and appreciation to on Mother's Day? Gentlemen, children, moms. Uh, this is this is a good, tangible way uh, of caring and demonstrating. But uh, you may the attitude that you may have exclusively today, like, oh, I need to be intentional about loving my mom today. It's like, yes, that is very, very true, and you should do that. But uh, that same attitude uh, you need to have each and every day, uh, and not just directed towards your mom, but towards everyone else. Uh, of ha- what good can I do uh, in my home, in my community? Are you looking at how you can serve uh, and love others or just looking for your own satisfaction and enjoyment? So uh, th- there is, there's so much here, but Jesus gives this uh, mandate and he's going to show us how is the light of Christ portrayed. Uh, it's when the disciples of Christ are doing the works of God. When we are doing good in the world, the light of Christ is going to be displayed. But then there's a second way the light of Christ is portrayed here in verses uh, 6 and the very beginning of uh, verse 7. And uh, he's going to say, we can read in verse 5, kind of some overlap here. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva and then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. Uh, and so wh- what we see here uh, in verse 5, Jesus is going to repeat what he said back in John chapter 8, verse 12, that he is the light of the world. Uh, and so uh, w- as Jesus is saying those words, very uh, emphatic there in verse uh, 6, that as he's speaking, he's also acting. Uh, As Jesus is saying, I am the light of the world and we must be doing the works of the one who sent me. What is he doing? He's spitting on the ground, right? Which probably would have got his disciples' attention, right? Like, why why are you doing that? Spits on the ground, mixes clay with his saliva, uh, and then he proceeds uh, to put this paste of clay and spit on the man's face, okay? Now, this stands out among all of the the occasions in which Jesus uh, healed a blind person. And realize that healing the blind was one of uh, Jesus' hallmarks. This is one of his most common, frequently mentioned miracles in the four Gospels. Uh, In Mark chapter 10, uh, he healed a man named Bartimaeus in Jericho. Uh, In Matthew 9, he heals two blind men in Galilee. Uh, In Matthew chapter 12, he heals a a man who was blind and mute. Uh, in Mark chapter 8, he heals a blind man in Bethsaida uh, and another uh, blind man in Matthew 21 after he cleanses the temple. Uh, and 
Now, over and over again, it's repeated that, that Jesus was healing the blind. This is also a, something that marked Jesus out as the Messiah because in the Old Testament, uh, as looking forward to who the Messiah was going to be and what he was going to do, uh, the Old Testament repeatedly said that the Messiah would heal the blind and he would give sight to those without sight. Isaiah chapter 29, verse 18 says, In that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. Now Isaiah 35, 5, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf, the deaf unstopped. Isaiah 42, verses 6 and 7, speaking about uh, the Lord's servant, the Messiah. says, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness, and I will take you by the hand and keep you. And I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind and to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. But again, uh, this miracle that we're reading about here in John chapter 9 is unique from the other miracles because usually Jesus says, okay, now you can see. Uh, or he touches the, the person and they're immediately able to heal. Uh, but Jesus heals in a unique and special way here. Uh, and w what's interesting is that some, some people, when, when they look and see how Jesus uh, used clay, uh, used dirt, uh, and put it on the man's eyes, some people would say that Jesus was actually performing a, another act of creation. Uh, and referring back to uh, Genesis chapter 2, when God created Adam out of the dust. Uh, and so was Jesus creating new eyes for this man? Not sure. We're not, we're not clear. But uh, what we do know is that ultimately he's going to come back seeing uh, but uh, what, we, what we see here uh, is uh, that Jesus puts this paste, this clay mixture on the man's eyes, uh, and then he tells him to go do something. Uh, and something that would have been really hard for this blind man to do, as I described. It wasn't easy for a blind man to get around uh, in uh, ancient times. So to say, uh, hey, stand up, go to the pool of Siloam uh, and wash the mud off of your eyes, uh, th that's going to be a significant uh, instruction. Uh, and uh, why would Jesus say that to him? And I think there's, there's multiple reasons. Number one, to get the mud off of his eyes. Uh, just a basic thing, like that, that has to come off. Uh, he's going to wash this off, but wash it off in this pool of Siloam. Uh, but I think there's, a, there's another reason, uh, and part of it is to connect, as I said, back to something that was uh, mentioned and referred to uh, in John chapter 7 and 8. Uh, in John chapter 7, uh, verse 37, uh, we, we talked about this, that on the last day of the feast, and really every day of the feast, uh, there was a water ceremony uh, at the beginning of the, the day. Uh, and so in John chapter 7, verse 37, when, when on the last day of the feast, when Jesus cries, stands up and cries out, literally screams, everyone look up here. And he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of the heart will flow rivers of living water. Uh, and so that would have made total sense to everybody because they're watching a ceremony uh, that's taking place with water there on, on the, the day of the feast. But each day for that water ceremony, uh, the priests would go and they would get huge uh, amounts of water. And guess where they would get the water from? The pool of Siloam. Uh, and so uh, there, there was a, a long trek, and we don't know where this blind man is, but he was sent to go into uh, the pool of Siloam uh, and to, uh, to wash. Uh, and John also doesn't 
uh, missed the, the opportunity uh, to, to translate this and to help us to see and understand why is this even significant? Like, John, why are you mentioning this? Why is Jesus making a big deal of go to the pool of Siloam and, and wash? Well, what w- it tra- the translation of uh, the name Siloam, uh, what does it mean? Sent. What has been Jesus' message over and over again throughout this fourth gospel? That he is the one who is sent by God the Father into the world as the light of the world uh, to bring salvation to humanity. And now what we have uh, is a blind person who has been trapped in darkness. Uh, he's being sent to this pool where he's to be washed. Again, all of this is, is tying together. The sent one is sending a blind person uh, to receive sight at the pool named Sent. Uh, and all of this pictures and portrays and foreshadows, shows us salvation. Uh, There's a lot here. But then uh, a third reason that I think Jesus sends this man to the pool of Siloam, very clear and very very basic, to test this man's faith, right? Uh, Is he going to be like the man in John 5 who wanted a healing from Jesus, but then nothing more? Uh, Is that the type of faith that this man is going to have, right? And think about that. This is a lot of work and effort for this blind man. We don't know, again, where he is, but to get over to the pool of Siloam would have been difficult. And it would have been an act of faith and of trust in Jesus' word. And again, think about this. Close your eyes. You, you, you haven't seen Jesus. You, you've heard little bits and pieces about him, and then suddenly he's there with you. He puts something on your eyes. You can't see him. You can only hear him. You don't know what he's put on your eyes. You may be kind of grossed out if you realize it was his saliva. Uh, but then he tells you to get up and walk across town and go wash your face in the pool of Siloam, right? This is a big moment in this blind man's life. What is he going to choose to do? Is he going to trust in the word of Jesus and act in faith, or is he going to disregard it, right? He absolutely could have been like, come on, why, why are you putting this on my eyes? And then like, I'm blind, I can't see anything. But he doesn't respond that way. This is absolutely a test of this man's faith. Uh, there's another account in Scripture where uh, something similar happens. Uh, in the Old Testament, uh, there was a, a man who was a leper named Naaman. Uh, and uh, in 2 Kings chapter 5, uh, we're introduced to this, this little Israelite girl who had been taken captive and was now serving as a, a slave in uh, Naaman's house. He was a, a captive captain in the Aramean army, uh, and this little Israelite girl tells him that there is a prophet in Israel who can heal him. Says, Let me tell you about Elisha. If you go to him, he will heal you. And so Naaman, uh, the, one of the enemies of Israel, goes and searches out Elisha uh, and is going to ask for a healing. Uh, and uh, Elisha doesn't even receive him. Uh, this, this big uh, captain of the army goes looking for Elisha, and Elisha's like, no, I'm not even going to see you. But 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 10 says this, And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh will be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are you not, uh, are not Ab- Abana and uh, Far, Par, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? And so he turned away in a rage. 
Now, initially, his response is like, come on. Like, you're not even going to come and see me. You're just going to instruct me to go and wash in this dirty Israelite water that I could I bypass to get here. Like, come on. The waters in my hometown are better than this. But his servants have a little bit more sense. And his servants come here and said to him, my father, it, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? And has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? Again, th- th- that idea of like, this is really not that hard. If, he had, if the prophet had told you to go do something really difficult to earn your healing, you probably would have done it, right? Uh, but this is, this is just a minor thing. Go wash and be healed. But this was a, a test of Naaman's faith. Would he believe in uh, and honor Elisha as a man of God? And would he trust that God would be able to heal him even in the dirty waters of the Jordan River? Verse 14 is going to sound very similar to what we see here in John chapter 9. So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Again, Naaman was tested. Yeah, do you want to be uh, cured of your leprosy? Trust and obey. Go and do this. And Naaman... Uh, Initially was hostile to it, but eventually he obeyed and he experienced uh, cleansing and ultimately salvation uh, from uh, uh, his leprosy and in his uh, spiritual walk. Uh, But Jesus was willing to heal this man, but he also wanted to test him. Uh, Would he look to him in faith uh, and uh, would he trust Jesus even though he could not see him? Would he would he trust all that he had heard? And and so you think about this. This is one of the ways that the light of Christ is portrayed in the world, right? When Jesus is proclaimed uh, as the light, when he is held up as being the one that we must look to, uh, when we point to him and say, hey, he's the North Star that we have to orient our entire lives around, uh, he is being proclaimed. He is being portrayed as the light of the world. Uh, And he is being held up as the one who's able to give spiritual sight, spiritual insight, uh, spiritual life to us, uh, the one that we must look to in faith. Uh, This is the picture of uh, this uh, healing here. Uh, And the light of Christ is portrayed when we call people to trust and obey Jesus, uh, when he's held up and exalted in that way. Uh, And so that was the the second way and means that the light of Christ is portrayed. The first one was when his disciples do good works. But then there's a third uh, way, and and that's at the end of verse 7, where the light of Christ is portrayed in the reception of sight and salvation. Uh, And so uh, the the second half of verse 7, very similar to what we just read uh, in the account of Naaman, right, that final verse. Uh, so th- this is all that we get concerning uh, the man's response. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Right? So that's all the details that we get. We're not told uh, how he got there, how long it took him to go down there, all of this. We're, we are just told uh, he responded in faith. He trusted all that Christ had said. He went and he washed and he came back with sight. Right? But what an understatement, right? Because he had never seen before. Imagine what that would have been like uh, to suddenly be able to see everything. You've been able to hear lots of things, but you've never been able to see not one thing in his entire existence. And suddenly Jesus says, you can see. This is an amazing miracle. And 
John is very intentional about his miracles. In, in the other Gospels, uh, there's miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. Uh, in John's Gospel, there are very few. This is actually only the sixth miracle that Jesus has performed uh, through nine chapters. Uh, the, the first miracle was turning water into wine back in John chapter 2. The second miracle was healing the, the nobleman's son from a distance. A man came to him and says, hey, Jesus, you've got to come with me. Jesus says, no, I'll, I'll just heal him right here. That's in John chapter 4. John chapter 5, the healing of the invalid man. And then John chapter 6, Jesus feeds. Uh, it's known as the feeding of the 5,000, but it was actually closer to 20,000. And then Jesus walks on water. And, and so uh, all of those uh, miracles or signs were given to illustrate truths that Jesus had taught uh, close to when those miracles were performed. Uh, and this miracle was selected and, and put in this account of the life of Christ to illustrate our salvation. Right? This man uh, who was born blind, he came into this world physically blind. Uh, and we, every single one of us, uh, enters into this world with spiritual blindness. Jesus saw this man and he initiated to heal him. Uh, God saw our spiritual blindness and he sent his son to save. God sent his spirit to regenerate our hearts, to give us new life. This man was sitting in darkness, and when, when Jesus instructed him, he responded in faith. Uh, you and I sit in darkness, and what are we instructed to do? To look to Christ, to trust in him, even if we cannot see him clearly. This man trusted the word of Christ, and he obeyed, and he received his physical sight. And when you and I trust in Jesus, we receive spiritual sight, salvation. The healing of this blind man shows us the glory of our own salvation as we uh, see it uh, in all of its beauty and majesty. And it shows us everything that we are if we are to follow Jesus uh, as well. That's where we're going to be the remainder of this chapter. This blind man comes to faith, he receives his sight, and now what does it look like to follow Jesus? That's what we're going to see. Uh, and so what we see in this illustration is a very clear picture, or in this uh, healing this miracle is a very clear illustration of our own salvation uh, but in this chapter there's also going to be another picture that is painted for us uh, and it's a very important picture it's a picture of those who claim to see but who really do not see again there's going to be a, a contrast between uh, this man who has who was blind from birth but now has been given sight uh, and what we're going to see uh, in the, the weeks to come is uh, all of his neighbors and the Pharisees and the religious leaders come and they begin to interrogate him. Uh, and they just refuse to believe uh, that this man w was uh, the same man. They, they refuse to believe in Jesus. Uh, and w what's remarkable, what makes John 9 one of my favorite chapters is there's a lot of sarcasm. Uh, and this blind man has a lot of attitude. It's like, okay, I like this. Uh, he's going to be like, oh, do you want to be his disciples? Like, no, no. Like, oh, let's, fo let's follow him together. So uh, there's, there's a lot there. Uh, but the big portion of this other portrait that's, that's going to be shown to us uh, is also demonstrated. Again, it's another reason that this, this pool of Siloam is important uh, is because it serves to highlight uh, not only the, the faith of this man, but also the rejection uh, of by the religious leaders and really all of Israel. When Christ comes, they reject him. Uh, back in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 6, uh, it says, because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoice over 
resin in the son of Remaliah. Now, and the, the idea is that Isaiah is saying that the people of Israel have rejected can the waters of this very pool. Uh, the Shiloh is the, the Hebrew uh, translation of uh, the pool of Siloam. Now, he said, hey, you have rejected the sent one. Uh, and so there's this connection being, being built here, uh, that Jesus is the sent one, and how are you going to respond to him? Uh, do you see yourself as already possessing sight, uh, and you don't need him? Like, no, I'm good. I can reject everything that he says. Or do you see that you are spiritually blind and in desperate need for him to act to give you sight? That, that is the line that is drawn here in John chapter 9. Uh, that, that is the, the picture that is being painted for us and ultimately leaving us with the question of how are we going to respond to the light of Christ? Now, uh, any of you have ever, maybe a, a while back, or flipping through the channels, uh, come across a, a guy. He's very friendly. Uh, he's a painter, uh, and uh, he's got a really cool little, little afro. Uh, his name is Bob Ross, very famous painter. I was uh, read, read an article the other day. You basically can't find his paintings anywhere. Everybody's like, I want, I want to get one of these. But what's amazing is if you ever watch one of his shows, it's intriguing because initially you're like, why should I even be interested in this? I don't paint. I don't know how to do any of this. But, but he was so uh, friendly and inviting and so good at teaching how to paint uh, that you were suddenly like, maybe I could do this, right? You kind of get this feeling. Uh, but what also what you saw uh, as he was teaching, you began to see and understand how paintings come together, right? Uh, you start, he starts with this blank canvas, uh, and then suddenly there's color, and you're like, what is this supposed to be? Uh, but he keeps adding things to it and granting layer upon layer uh, to this picture. And then at the end, you're like, wow, that was just absolutely fascinating to watch. Uh, and that's really what we are seeing here in John 9, uh, we, we are seeing Christ paint for us a picture of our salvation, uh, of what it looks like. We're, we're seeing not a blank canvas, uh, but spiritually blind people. This is where we were, and this is now Jesus is, is going to, to paint over and transform us from a blank canvas of spiritual blindness into a people chosen uh, for his glory. Uh, and rescued and reconciled and redeemed uh, so that we could worship him forever. Uh, that's what we are beginning to see here, and it's going to be layer upon layer, not just of what salvation looks like here in verses 4 through 7, but as we continue to study this chapter, we're going to see what does it look like to follow Jesus, and that there's a cost to following Jesus. This man who's born blind, he's going to be kicked out of the synagogue. You can't, you can't follow uh, Jesus and not have other consequences. Uh, that, that's going to be the message. There, there's so much here in this chapter, and we're going to see it layer by layer becoming more and more clear to us. Uh, and it provides a, a, a clarity and a, and a color to all that Jesus has done on our behalf. And so then the response is, uh, do I trust in Jesus? Do I believe uh, what he's saying about me from the very beginning? that I am spiritually blind and in need of his help, uh, or am I going to come to a different conclusion? Am I going to proclaim my own sightedness uh, and in doing so reveal my absolute spiritual blindness? 
Uh, we're left with this choice over and over again in this chapter, and it's something to begin to, to contemplate and think about. How would we respond if we were this man who was born blind? Would we respond in faith? We had never seen Jesus, only heard him. Again, we, we, you and I are really in the same situation. We haven't seen Jesus with our eyes, but we have heard him in his words. And how are we going to respond? Will it be a response of faith? Or will it be a response of prideful arrogance? No, I don't need Jesus. I can go my own way and do my own thing. That's what we are going to see. That's the, the picture that's being painted for us. Uh, and the key is, uh, will we respond in worship or in pride uh, and arrogance? Uh, and my heartfelt prayer is that we would all look to Jesus uh, in faith and trust, that we would grow in our appreciation uh, for all that he is and all that he has done for us. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to continue to, to sing and worship the Lord through song, and uh, may the words of that song echo within our heart and resonate within us, that we would give all glory to Christ. But let's